Luke chapter 11. This section that we're kind of coming into here um, is a is a really fun section because we kind of get to these spots now uh, in the Gospel of Luke where basically it's just like Jesus saying a whole bunch of stuff. He's just talking like the whole time. Uh, and when he speaks, um, a lot of times uh, you find that he says things that are clear but also like simultaneously uh, a little bit unclear, right? You kind of ever get that feeling. You're like, I think he said something important and it must be important because it's Jesus because he's like saying things. And I'm not quite sure what's happening. In the previous, in the previous uh, passage, you kind of see he kind of gives this parable there, and, and you get like a good portion of the picture, but maybe you're not like understanding it fully. But what, what you find with Jesus here is much of his communication, much of what he shares is meant to invite us into that story. It's meant to invite us into, uh, into his communication. For those people who don't want to hear it, don't want the content, don't want to understand, they're going to be like, that doesn't make any sense, and they just shut it off. But the people who are really interested, they're going to, they're going to lean in a little bit more. They're going to find out, like, what are, you, what are you really saying there? You find this several times throughout the Gospels, where Jesus is even with his disciples, and he's, like, telling them the story, and, he, and, and it's clear that, like, they don't really get it all the way, and then they continue on their journey, and then you find that the author of the Gospel will say, and the disciples asked him about this thing that he was saying, because they didn't get it at the time, but they're like, I think we're supposed to get it. I think we're meant to get it. And you can see in their curiosity that they are interested in knowing and understanding Jesus. They're interested in knowing and understanding his heart and saying, how can we not just say, well, I think it means this and that's enough. They press in further. What is it that is being said, Jesus? What do you want to communicate to us? Now, in this passage, uh, something begins to happen here. There's kind of a, the two crowds are beginning to mix. Two crowds that are, are, are beginning to, to come to a larger, uh, a larger group. First, this is reflecting back on the, the, path, the group of people that you find all the way back in um, verse 14. You find there he's in a situation where he's casting out a demon from uh, this man. There's a guy who's, who's been mute, and, and one of the other Gospels tells us that he's deaf. And Jesus tells him, uh, he casts out this demon from this man, and there's a group of people there. And, and they see this, they see what's happening in that moment, and, and they are thinking to themselves, you know, this guy, he is doing the work of Satan, which Jesus it tells us in verse uh, 17, I believe, there that he, he knows their thoughts. He knows what's happening, and so he jumps right into the conversation without them even asking. And he, he tells them, uh, every kingdom that is divided against itself will not stand. So he starts addressing the issue. And he starts making this point that, like, it doesn't make any sense, guys, for you to be thinking that I'm from Satan. Because, like, uh, if a kingdom is divided, it's going to fall. And if I cast out demons, um, then Satan's kingdom is going to be weakened if I, like, cast out demons by Satan's power. So, like, it doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. Uh, you can see through Jesus's work there that he doesn't make this man's condition worse. He doesn't uh, take a guy who is mute and all of a sudden, you know, he uh, paralyzes his legs or he doesn't cause further harm. In fact, he brings restoration. He does the opposite of the, what Satan is doing. And so in that moment there, you see that, that Jesus is making this point to this group. Hey, you guys don't really uh, know what you're talking about. I, I can't quite possibly be casting out these demons by Satan because it would be uh, you know, uh, counterproductive to what Satan's trying to accomplish. Like, I'm, uh, I'm working for him, but against him at the same time. It doesn't make any sense, guys. And, and so, as he says this, um, he's making this point that it must be from God's own hand. 
the finger of God, he tells us uh, in verse 20. If it is the finger of God, uh, by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, he presents these two options. And in the crowd there, there are people who see this miracle. They see this great work. And some people have those thoughts. They reject him. That's what we're told at the very beginning uh, in verse 15 or uh, 14. Some people marveled, but some of them said, uh, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So there's, some, there's a divided crowd here. There's some people who are like, we reject this guy. We think he's from Satan. There's other people who want to see more. They're like, we want to see more. Do more stuff for us, Jesus. We want to put you to the test. They're looking for, for, for more miracles. They don't necessarily uh, believe. They just, they, just, they just want to see more cool stuff. Now, as this group is here, we, we move through these other sections, and Jesus speaks about the stuff that we were talking about last week. But then we kind of pivot back to this section uh, because the crowd is beginning to grow. As, as is the case, you know, anytime there's a big crowd already gathered and everybody else is like, what's going on over there? And all these other looky-loos, they start to gather around. And, and Jesus knows that the reason why they're there is not to hear his words. They also want to be like, oh, all my friends are over here and they're checking out this cool guy. And they want to be entertained and they want to see these miracles. And the rest of these people all show up and the crowd begins to grow. And as uh, they're there, they're seeking a further miraculous demonstration from Jesus. Just like they were seeking a sign to test him, again here we find this uh, message given, uh, or, or Jesus, um, they're, they're wanting Jesus to validate his words, his message through these miracles. And so we come now to this context in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, so there it is, there's a, a bigger group of people, now they're there. And instead of putting forth a sign, a, a miracle for them to experience, he began to say, verse 29, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, this is about to get like all gnarly because uh, in this passage, Jesus just starts like yelling at everybody, saying like, you guys are all evil. And then wait till, wait till we get down to, um, in, in the future weeks, we get down to verse 37. He gets invited into this party and starts like just telling all these people like, you know, this is evil and this is evil. It gets really crazy. But Jesus, he didn't pull in any punches here with this group of people. And here's why. Here's what he's getting at here. He tells them, you are coming to me. Not for me, not for what I can, uh, who I am, but you're coming to me as uh, you are coming to see a magician. You're coming to see my parlor tricks. You are coming to see the things. Uh, to you, what is most important is being entertained, seeing a sign. You're using me as a means to an end. The means is his miracles to their entertainment. And Jesus will not be used in that way. He's not going to allow them to do that. He says uh, to this group of people, this generation is an evil generation. If you're the type of person who's going to do that, this, uh, he's primarily speaking to this, this group of uh, Jewish people who are living at this time. If you're going to come to me and you're going to choose not to trust me, but you want to see uh, what I can do, you want to see all these, uh, these miracles, then you are pursuing something other than who I am. It's an evil pursuit. These people, right, these people have the privilege of witnessing the Son of God and hearing his words. 
They'd heard his words. They'd seen his miracles so far up to this point. I mean, it's not like this is their first time seeing what Jesus can do uh, about him, uh, about them hearing his message, hearing the words that he's sharing. This isn't the first time. But in the middle of all this, they want to be entertained, but they want uh, to refuse his message. They want to refuse his words. I call your attention back to uh, verse 28. Remember there, he says uh, to this woman who's trying to speak blessings out, he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it who hear the word of God and keep it. It's not just enough to hear it. That's not helpful. If you hear it, but you don't do anything with it, then you can be, uh, you are one of these people that Jesus is saying here is someone who could be lumped in with this evil generation. You're hearing the word of God, but you're saying, that's not for me. That's not important enough for me to uh, listen, for me to obey. The word of God goes unheeded in the midst of all of the, this activity that is happening around Jesus. And so he calls them out. He says, you've got to understand that I will not be here to entertain you. But he does say that there is a sign that will happen, something that will happen. He doesn't say, uh, I will never give you a sign. He says, I'm not going to entertain you. Verse 29, this seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So, of course, now uh, he references this sign of Jonah. And if you've uh, read the book of Jonah, you find that it is the story of this man uh, who is uh, a part of Israel. God tells him that he has a message to bring to this wicked city. Uh, it's a city of, of Gentiles, people who were Israel's enemy. They are uh, Assyrians. And so, uh, number one, these people really hated Israel. They spent most of their time attacking Israel. And uh, in this instance, uh, God tells someone from Israel, his own uh, prophet, and he raises him up and says, I want you to go tell them that judgment is coming upon them. That there is uh, judgment coming their way because of their wickedness. But if if they hear your words and you, you go and you tell them the God of Israel tells, the, tells you to repent, to change your ways, to stop being wicked, to stop being evil, then you will be saved, right? And so here's what happens. Uh, Jonah gets that message and he says, you know, I, I don't really want to do that. Um, I don't really like those people. I don't think they're worth saving. And so he goes off and he runs the other way. He doesn't listen to God. He doesn't take the message. So he goes off and he goes the opposite direction, ends up getting uh, in a situation, right? Spoiler alert. He gets kind of thrown over the side of a ship and ends up in the belly of a large fish in which he's there for three days and three nights. And after he uh, has spent some time there, uh, the Lord commands this fish to vomit Jonah back out and uh, he then heeds the word of the Lord and goes to this city and tells these people, you've got to repent. So in this situation, they uh, hear his words, they hear his message, and then uh, they, in fact, they do repent. They hear it, and, and they do exactly what Jonah told them to do. They understand the, that they are living in wickedness, and they change their ways. They do uh, they obey Jonah's words. They listen to the word of the Lord. They respond to him. Now, here, as Jesus says, 
that there is going to be no sign given except for the sign of Jonah. Now, this is then a story that unfurls in the minds of each person who's there. All of a sudden, they're like, what does he mean by like the sign of, like, of Jonah? Like, what's happening there? So, a couple things are happening there. Number one, uh, of course, he is telling them Jonah was a sign to these people of God's persistence to get people to repent. He sent this guy, and the guy was like, I don't want to go that way. Uh, and Jonah goes, get, has to go through all these trials and tribulations. But finally, he goes and he tells, he shares the message with this group of people who are living in wickedness, and the people repent. He's like, okay, so God sent this person to, a, a, as a sign of his coming judgment, of this coming judgment, and a call to repentance. So there's kind of sign one. This unfurls in, in their minds. But then, beyond that, we also find that uh, there is the sign of Jonah as understood through Jonah being uh, in the belly of this great fish for three days and three nights. Now, for these hearers here, for the first time in Luke chapter 11, they're probably like, okay, well, like, I'm not really sure what that means. I'm not really sure what's like happening there. Uh, that's a little bit weird. Like, okay, maybe he's going to bring this message of judgment called repentance. But on the other side, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, they see that the sign is there. It's a reminder for this group of people to say, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for, uh, for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man uh, be in, uh, after uh, being killed, being murdered by humanity at the cross, he then goes and, and preaches uh, freedom to those who are captive. He is, uh, he is uh, three days in the grave and then finally is, is resurrected, defeats death, and comes out the other side victorious. So Jesus would rise from the dead after being in that grave. So he would come forth on the other side. And so in some senses, there's, there's two things happening here. Number one, the sign is that Jesus is going to preach this message of repentance, uh, calling them uh, to turn from their wicked ways, which was not a surprise because this is how he showed up in the beginning, right? John the Baptist was preparing the way with this same message. And then Jesus shows up on the scene at, and at his baptism and he says, uh, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Like, this is not like new information to them. But then on the other side, he's telling them this. If you want to see a sign, the last sign that I'm going to give you, the conclusive miracle that verifies my earthly ministry, that says who I am, will be the resurrection. It will be that I am raised from the dead. There will be a sign. Just as Jonah was gone for three days, I will uh, be raised from the grave after three days. He says this sign is going to be sufficient. Now, they're going to see these miracles, and they've been seeing these miracles. But then, but then, here's, here's how, like, it gets, how crazy this gets. Then Jesus starts to then apply these other situations from Israel's past to this large group of people. So he, he trots out now two, two people, one, uh, or two groups. One group from the book of Jonah and from that story, since he just referenced it. But then he brings out this other, uh, this other figure called the Queen of the South. So here's what he says in verse 31. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone, something greater than Solomon is here. So this is how, how it gets. Jesus calls out and he trots out this woman 
who is called the Queen of the South. Uh, in the scriptures, this is also someone who is referred to as the Queen of Sheba. She was a, a, a woman who uh, ruled over this area in Southwest Arabia. And she, you can read about it um, in, in 1 Kings chapter 10, and uh, I believe it's uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 9. And what you find here is that she hears about the incredible wisdom of Solomon. She has uh, this uh, word given to her about his wonderful reputation, the wisdom that has been given to him from the Lord. And she understands that he is ruling in this uh, magisterial way and he's incredible. And so she comes to find out about Solomon's reputation. She kind of comes to, that, to, to visit him. She spends time with him to say, is it true what is said about him? And she finds that it is beyond what she expected. Here's how uh, it's described uh, in 1 Kings chapter 10. This is the Queen of Sheba speaking back to Solomon. She said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came uh, and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. So Jesus says, okay, this woman, the Queen of Sheba, she shows up to Solomon. She wants to verify what's happening there. And she just spends some time talking to him. And she poses like all these like riddles to him and, and asks him about all these stories. And she kind of just grills him, right? Uh, and what she finds out is she's like, like I, I can't even like come up with enough stuff to like stump this guy. Like he's just like over the top, crazy wise. Like the Lord has prospered him in just like incredible ways. And, and in this, Jesus says, this woman, the queen of the south, she is going to rise up at the end, at the end of time, the judgment with the men of this generation. So she says, this evil generation, you guys are going are, are gonna to be together compared with the queen of the south, and she is going to pronounce judgment upon you, right? So what is he getting at there? He basically says, she, uh, this, this woman, she's going to execute judgment on this generation because she responded to Solomon, she didn't see a single miracle from Solomon. He didn't do anything miraculous. All he did was like speak to her. She, she came, she witnessed, and she was like, this is incredible. If she had lived in the days of Jesus, she would have been like, okay, yep. Like, I mean, imagine uh, how, how much uh, more impactful it would have been for her to witness the works, the miracles of Jesus. She would have have. Uh, been someone who responded immediately to him. And he says, Jesus says, she's going to rise up in judgment against the evil of this generation who has the privilege of seeing these miracles, of hearing the words of the Son of God. And nevertheless, they reject him. So she's in, sitting in a better spot, he tells them. But then he presses in even further in verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So again, this is that group of people from, uh, from the story of, of Jonah, this city of Nineveh, they were Assyrians, and God called them to repent, and they listened. But the people of, of, of Nineveh, they hear Jonah's words, 
And they respond, Jonah is not Jesus. In fact, he's, he, he is so insistent that this group of people not have salvation that he tries to go the other way. He's really against them uh, repenting. He really doesn't want this to happen. In fact, when they do repent, Jonah complains. He's like, I, can't, I knew you were going to spare them, God. He's like all mad about it. He like really does not want this to happen. So it's not that Jonah had this like great, amazing, like he was a, this great orator who like really convinced them. This isn't on Jonah. He really didn't want to convince them. What he did want to do was obey what the Lord had told him to do. And so this group of people, the, the people of Nineveh, they respond to the people, uh, to the preaching of Jonah, and they repent. But the Jews, this group of people who are hearing Jesus, they refuse to respond to the preaching of one who is greater than Jonah. Now, both of these instances are also incredibly offensive because they're both uh, Gentile groups. Israel's ancient uh, enemy, Assyria, and then like this woman who's like the leader of another country. Both of them are not Israel, but both, Jesus says, are going to be in a better spot. They are lauded before the people of Israel because they actually listen, they actually respond. They are Gentiles. They're people who are on the outside. And Jesus says, but they listen. Remember, what he said here is it's more important to hear the word of God and keep it. Remember, he said in the earlier chapter when they, his family was there and they were trying to get to him, Jesus didn't deal with them on the basis of uh, their, their actual blood relationship. He said, who is my family? Who is my family? Because they were like, your brother and your, and your mom are here to see you. And he's like, who, who the heck is my family? He says, those who are my family who, who are, are those who hear my word and they do it. He puts obedience above blood relationship. Like, that's how crazy Jesus is about hearing and doing. And so he says, these people here, these outsiders, the Gentiles, they listen. And so no wonder he's calling these people an evil generation, they have the opportunity to receive, but they do not. And then he, he immediately pivots into this uh, kind of parable, if you will, in verse 33. Let's look at it together. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. So he, he jumps into this parable, which uh, kind of may be familiar with you. Uh, he's already said this same statement, literally same statement, back in chapter 8, verse 16. He's, he's pulled this one out before. Now, when we looked at it in that section, we look at it in the same way here, uh, and we bring a, a couple comparisons, because if, if you've uh, read the Bible, you've studied the Bible a little bit, you kind of like think about this section, and, and you, you immediately kind of go to like, okay, the lamp on the lampstand, and we're supposed to like be like the city on the hill and let our light shine for Jesus. Like, that's not what this is about, okay? That section in chapter 8 and that section, this section here is not about like you shining your light right, for Jesus, let your light shine. That's not what it's about. He's, that's a totally separate passage. He, that is the thing. That's not this section. Okay, what he's getting at here is different. He is talking about the illumination that he brings, not the illumination that you bring. This isn't your job. This is his job and how you respond to the light. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. So here, the purpose of this lamp, of lighting this lamp, uh, is not to hide the light, not to dim it, but to illuminate a room 
so that all who enter may see what is in the room, may rightly see the obstacles, may rightly see uh, those things that are there and navigate it wisely in relation, uh, in relationship to the light that is cast upon it. The light colors, it shapes how you respond to those things. If you enter into a dark room, you're going to navigate things much differently. But Jesus says, when, when you bring in the light that I am giving to you, when you let that, when you put that in place and you are someone who responds, then you're going to navigate life differently. You're going to respond as a, a differently as a different generation, as a different people. In the same way that the, the Queen of Sheba responded, uh, she let the light illuminate how she was going to respond to Solomon, his wisdom, the wisdom that came from God. She made different choices there. As you see that the people of Nineveh heard the word of Jonah that came from the Lord. It wasn't Jonah's own words, but it was God's word to these people. And they responded. They are letting the light in. And so Jesus tells, uh, tells this group of people that you ought to be a people who hear and see, uh, hear his words. You see the light of his message and you respond to it. Let it illuminate every area of your life. And so if you hear his word, you should respond to it. He goes on in verse uh, 34, and he speaks about how important this is. Uh, illuminating, and, and the gateway, the gateway of, of your body being this, uh, he says, your eye. He kind of speaks about this vessel that takes in the light. And how we ought to uh, let that light in to our body. Your eye, verse 34, is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. So if the eye brings in light, if it catches light, it illuminates the whole person. It gives them insight, wisdom, how they ought to operate. As the light penetrates your eye, uh, it goes in and it's processed throughout your whole body and you're able to, uh, to make wise decisions. Now, that happens in a physical aspect, but he applies this spiritually. That the, as we hear his word, as we let it illuminate who we are, then it allows us to take in that spiritual truth and allows us to operate wisely according to his word illuminating our whole body. But he says there, if you operate in unbelief, if, it's, if your eye is bad, then your body is full of darkness. Their unbelief was uh, partially the result of their uh, motives. They, they didn't want to hear him. They were there to be entertained, not to uh, give him control. If the eye does not take in the light, if it rejects it, if it refuses, of course you're going to operate in darkness. Of course there's going to be uh, a lack of spiritual light in your life. Of course you're not going to be able to navigate life in the same way as if you had that perfect vision. And then he finishes with a warning for, uh, in verse 35. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So one word against deception and one word about um, encouragement and about letting your light then, uh, you know, 
shine out onto others. First, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. I think this falls into the category of people who are uh, hearing the word of God, but not doing it, who are listening uh, to what God's word, uh, God is saying, but they're, they're, they're receiving it maybe perhaps in an academic way and not in a personal way. That's interesting information. I understand what's happening there, but they're not applying it to their lives. They're not figuring out how it, what it means for them. I think this is one of the main reasons why the, the, you find the opening words of the book of James as it kind of talks there about the, the different desires that we have. And it says like, you know, there's temptations and desires that we have. And, and, and sometimes those things, um, desires, when we, when we give into them, they, they lead to death. But then he like pivots immediately to this other section about like, uh, uh, about like hearing and, and, and doing the word. And he says specifically there uh, that, that you ought not to deceive yourself. There's like a, a, a warning that takes place in the book of James there. That we ought to be those who are hearing uh, the word and doing it and not deceiving ourselves. It's the same emphasis that Jesus is making here. Now, if you think about that, think about this for a minute. The author of the book of James is James, the brother of Jesus. There's nobody who would have been more tempted to be like, look, Jesus, like, I see who you are. Like, I get it. And for much, much of James's life, that was the case. He was somebody who saw the things that Jesus was doing. He heard him. There goes my brother again saying all, like, all this stupid stuff. It doesn't make any sense. I don't really agree with it. He's making trouble for us. He was on the receiving end of that group of people who came to... Uh, him and his mom came to tell Jesus, like, hey, like, we're here to get our crazy brother out of your, out of your house. And Jesus is like, who is my mother of my brothers? Those who hear the word of God and do it. He's like on the receiving end of that statement. And so no wonder he understands that there could be a way that you hear God's word, you hear the words of Jesus, and you're just like, yeah, I get it, but like, whatever. He was, he was that person. But all of a sudden, after the resurrection, he sees the sign of Jonah. He understands that this is who Jesus is. And all of a sudden, he's transformed. Jesus is really who he said he is. He really is the Son of God. He really is the Redeemer. And then he becomes someone who keeps his word. And so this warning goes out from Jesus in verse 35. But then he finishes uh, with this encouragement in verse 36. If your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. If your whole body is full of light, if you take it in, if you receive the word of God, if you welcome him in, it will be wholly bright. As when a lamp with rays gives you light, it will be fully illuminated. The word of God acts as a lamp within you. And it puts you in a position where you are then reflecting that light out. It's just bursting out of you. You can't do anything about it. If you receive it, you're going to be illuminated. And then that's going to be uh, visible to other people. It's going to rub off onto other people. This person that Jesus is, is describing is someone who wants to know him. 
He wants to give uh, his light to us so that we might be a people who are flooded, who are absolutely overcome with the illumination that Christ brings into our lives, that gives us the ability to see things how he sees them, not how we see them, not how other people see them. And it allows us to live in such a way that it reflects then onto other people. It passes that on as they see, uh, as we see one another, they're illuminated with the glory of Christ, with the joy that only he can give. We pass it on to one another. And we operate as, uh, as a, a unit, as a group of people, as lights then in this dark world. Now, the thing that I love about this, that's kind of a final word here is this. It is absolutely not up to you to like make that light brighter. It is absolutely not up to you. It only comes out full strength. There's no like, oh, okay, well, like I got like 10 percent, ten percent. Like, it, there's no like partial. When 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 you come to the Word of God, when you open yourself up and you say, I, I want to receive what you have for me, Jesus. He goes, hundred percent. Here you go, fullness, everything you want, all of it. And it's not your job. It's not your job to to make that thing shine brighter and brighter and brighter. It just is bright. That's just what it is. He's 100% full all the time. It's your job to keep looking at him. As long as you're looking at him, he's going to shine full brightness. If you get distracted, if you start looking away, if you start being uh, paying attention to other things, if, you, uh, if, if your eye starts to be diseased and you start closing your eyes to him, then yeah, it's going to dim out. But you're not going to do anything yourself to make it brighter. So this isn't on you to be like, well, I've got to, I've got to do better. I've got to be like a, a, a better Christian, a stronger Christian. No, all you have to do is keep looking at Jesus. That's it. That's all everybody has to do. Like, he's got all of the hard parts. All you have to do is keep looking at him. He'll handle the other parts. You're not going to muster up enough strength to make it brighter. You're not going to, like, create some new way to generate more energy or more. Like, it's not going to happen. You're just going to tire yourself out. It's going to burn out. It's not going to be good. Your job is to be obsessed and to look at Jesus. That's it. Easy. Easy to do uh, in the sense that he is so great to look at. Right? I mean, just so kind and generous and gentle. A loving Savior who would invite us into his family even though he knows intimately all of the ways that we have offended him and will continue to offend him, to sin against him, but willingly goes to the cross paying for our sin. What a wonderful, kind, and generous Savior we have. And we respond to that. And so it's my prayer this morning that we would be a people who hear the word of God and we keep it. We set our eyes to look at Jesus the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Let's pray when we respond together. Lord, we are grateful for your word and for the truth of the scripture. And we pray that you would teach us, that you would train us not to do things for you, but just to 
look upon you, to be at rest as we consider who you are and what you've done. We don't want to be uh, an evil generation who is resistant, but we want to people, be a people who are uh, humbling ourselves, who are recognizing that you are greater than uh, Solomon, you are, are, are greater than Jonah, you're greater than any effort that we could put forth. And so, Lord, we want to be uh, at rest in you. We want to pursue you. And so, work in your church. Help us to work together to shine uh, and to reflect your light. And that you might be glorified in your church. We love you. Amen.